starting where I started, things unfolded the right way for me. And I came into entrepreneurship at the right time. I wasn't ready when I was 20. I wouldn't know what company I would start and why and why that mattered and how to even get customers. Or So I needed my corporate jobs to get me there. But now that I know what I know, yeah, my path would be into entrepreneurship. And starting out, I would start a service company. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In today's episode, I talk with Josh Little. He is the CEO of Volley, which is an asynchronous app that's looking to disrupt the space between Slack and Zoom. A really interesting episode. He's done a lot. He's had two exits under his belt. He has a very successful YouTube channel. He even has an e-commerce site that sells his pickling products. But we talk about his journey. We also talk about some of his half-baked startup ideas. And there's some really good ones in there, from a smart car air freshener to this idea of the Netflix of you. He comes up with this concept for the four seasons of RV parks and even subscription boxes for girl dads like the two of us. And at the end, he even talks about the best job he ever had, which was actually at Red Lobster. So I hope you enjoy this episode. For anyone that's looking to start something, hearing how he was able to take his 20 ideas he had rattling around in his head and actually create one that has now gone on to raise over 4 million bucks. It's, it's pretty eye-opening and there's some good frameworks in there you can use. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm very excited to have Josh Little here. We were able to talk beforehand, but Josh, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, Josh Little, a four-time founder, creating my latest work, which is uh, Volley, which is video messaging for remote teams, helping remote teams communicate better. That's what I'm maniacally focused on right now. Yeah, I think with any company, any startup, like I've, I very early on got, I've just started getting into angel investing. And one thing I'm seeing is, Timing is so important with any company you start. And I do think the idea you're working on, the product you're building, is at this really interesting inflection point with remote work. So I'm excited to, to get into that. But one thing as I was going through your background, I thought it was super interesting because you've started so many companies. You're a trained singer. You've worked at Red Lobster. You have a YouTube channel. You have an e-commerce site where you do pickling. There's so much that you do that we could get into. But first, give me some context. Talk about how did all this start to go down these entrepreneurial paths? Like, when did you start going down that route? It's kind of a winding road. I, I was an entrepreneur as a kid and I didn't know it. I mowed lawns and I had quite a little business. And my mom was an entrepreneur and I didn't know it. And, and not that I didn't know what she did. She just didn't know that she was an entrepreneur. She cleaned houses and wallpapered and painted, but she very much made her own income, made a, a little business and extra income for our family. So in my hometown in Jackson, Michigan, entrepreneur is not a word that people used. You know, the the top of the heap in my high school, like his the richest kid in my high school, his dad owned a little Caesars. That's the top of the heap, you know, where I, I came from. So it took a while. And so in, in my hometown, there's three options. You could either work at the prison, the power company, or be a teacher. And those were the options that I had before me. So I chose teacher and uh, went to school to be a teacher and, you know, realized 
that it wasn't my thing. I kind of realized that when I was student teaching. And uh, luckily, I figured out that the same skills that made me great as a teacher also made me great at sales. So then I went on to a sales career in at three Fortune 500 companies and did very well, kind of would become number one, you know, in the division. And then they would want to bring me in-house to, to do sales training, which was a natural fit because of the education background. And so I kind of hopped from company to company doing sales, sales training, marketing. And it was really scratching my own itch in my early 30s that, that I started my first company called Maestro. I was trying to build an e-learning program at Stryker, uh, the last company I was at. And it was a full-time job to try to orchestrate and bring all the pieces together. And I thought there should just be a company that does this. And so I left and I started that company. And it turns out pretty much every other training manager in uh, medical device and pharma felt the same way. And so we were able to quickly build a, a nice business building online learning content, which gave us the opportunity to see the problem at sort of a meta level, and which helped us realize, oh, actually, 90% of what you need to know to do your job, do you actually learn from places other than training? So we built a software platform called Bloomfire that solve that problem. It was social learning. And this is, you know, 2009. And that was acquired in 2011, built another company called Quizzer and uh, publishers and marketers, some of the top brands in the world engage their audience with interactive content, left that in 2016 and really took about four years pondering what my next thing was, you know, I'm 45. Now it's time to write the magnum opus. What does that need to look like? So I started working through about 12 different ideas. Pickles was one of them on my way to find Volley. And Volley was just the right product for me at, at the right time for the world. There's some really interesting stuff there, but I want to I have kind of two questions. First, you talked about looking through ideas before you decided to go all in on Volley. What's that process like? Because I think a lot of people are at that point. They have all these different ideas floating in, around in their head. But how did you decide to choose one and to put all your time and energy into that? And what were some of the ideas that you decided not to? And, and why was that? Yeah, good question. You know, when I started Maestro and Bloomfire, this is pre-Eric Reese Lean Startup. The world didn't know who Steve Blank was outside of, you know, a small group in the Bay Area, you know? So the, the idea of validation wasn't even a thing. It wasn't something I considered. I just thought, you know, entrepreneurs just have a good idea and run after it with all the vigor. And, and it worked a couple of times, but I, I wised up with the third and the fourth and started to build my own process for validation. And what that looks like is I have a rubric of a couple of hundred ideas that I've just kept over time, things that people should just build and I rate them and rank them based on what I'm trying to accomplish at the time. And so I get the rubric out that surfaces the ideas and the, that I want to experiment on. Then I have this whole validation worksheet and process, which is just basically like 50 questions that I have to answer truthfully in order to green light this in and move on with it. Most of them I can't. Most of them, yeah, it's really clear like this isn't going to work or at least it's it's this, there's many of them that are actually could work. They could be successful. They just aren't something that I'm interested in building or have some aspect that I just don't want to revisit again because I already, already ran that race, you know? So, so yeah, there were 12 ideas on the way to Bali. I took two years and lucky enough, my stage in career that to have the, the ability uh, to do something like that. But, you know, I took two years. I spent about only $25,000 just kind of testing different ideas, building prototypes you know, for different, you know, for the pickle company, I hired a pickle scientist and 
we worked and iterated on about a hundred different batches to only realize, you know, what I was trying to do was scientific, scientifically impossible. So that one <laughs> is a fail, you know? So we push that one down, start the next one. After a couple of years, the pandemic hits. I've been thinking about the problem of how to get the right information to the right people at the right time at work and uh, fell in love with asynchronous video communication on tools like Snapchat and Marco Polo. And it all just came together and it was like, ah, this is what the world needs. When the world went remote or we we're forced to go remote, yet we all still needed to talk to move work forward. This is the place to go, Bali. Yeah, I think it's really smart too that you come up with these ideas and you actually don't just think about them, but you put them into action and you try and validate them. And then you're very decisive and hey, this is working or not working because I think a lot of people can make that mistake. And sometimes it's hard to hear that your baby's ugly or, or whatever that is. So for people that don't know, can you talk about Volley and, and what it is exactly? Yeah, uh, Volley is a messaging app with a video first approach that allows remote teams to communicate better and faster because of the asynchronous video component. So in Volley, you take turns just like any other conversation, just like we're taking turns in this conversation, except you record your turn with video. And this allows some magical things to happen. You can take time to think before you respond. You can you know, search back. You can listen to the other in 2x. There's a, a number of superpowers that asynchronous gives you. So we like to think that we've created the best of both worlds, the richness of talking with the flexibility of texting. So there's no place that needs that more uh, than remote teams where we feel separated, yet we're trying to do big things. Communication matters. So why not use rich medium such as video as our primary source of communication? That's the idea of Volley with apps on both you know, iOS and Android, as well as uh, Mac and PC on desktop. Yeah. And for people that don't know, it's it's sitting, it sounds like it's sitting at the intersection of Slack and Zoom a little bit, whereas the pandemic happened. And I don't know if you're like me, but I found myself in six hours of Zoom meetings a day and it's exhausting. You're not getting any work done. And do videos have to happen in real time or could it be, to your point, asynchronous? But then the flip is that if you're not doing any video and you're just doing Slack, so much nuance gets lost, tone gets lost, it can really erode at culture. So was that really like the problem you're looking to solve? And also, what are some of the main use cases you're seeing with Volley? Because there's so many different applications for it. What are ways people use this where you're like, wow, that's such a great use of it and you're seeing traction and you're seeing growth with it? When we started, we actually, the from the early concept and prototype, the feedback we got was, oh, this could replace a number of our meetings. And so that's kind of what we built. That was our early marketing. And what we spoke to is Volley is the end of meetings as we know it. But the reality is, and what we're learning from our users, there's still some good reasons to talk synchronously. And it is more efficient and effective to do so. And what we're learning at the same time is that for for certain teams, you know, these small teams, startups, side hustles, where relationships are new, communication matters, they're actually using it in place of Slack. And with that, extending asynchronous way deeper into the spectrum to do things like stand-ups and one-on-ones and brainstorms asynchronously. Certainly, you wouldn't want to have like accountability or termination conversations asynchronously, but there's a heck of a lot of things that, that are just better done asynchronously. And so that's what we're interested in doing is kind of replacing your 
Slack and Loom combo, and then then you know letting you cut down on your Zooms a little bit. No, it makes total sense, and it's pretty easy to villainize video conferencing and Slack. It's such a pain point, so you're truly making something that solves a problem. The idea makes sense. I love the framework of idea traction growth. So you you have this idea. You decide to go all in. Can you talk about what you did to validate that you had something and how you knew you had signs of traction that, hey, this might work? Sure. So the first thing to validate is product promise fit. Do people want to take the medicine that you're thinking of creating? So what I did with Volley First is create kind of a high fidelity concept and prototype. No code, just design. And made a little video and told a little story. It's a three-minute video. I, I narrated it. And sent it out to you know my uh, network on LinkedIn and Facebook and just asked people to give feedback. And the first concept was Volley for Sales. And it was all about a salesperson at a car dealership and the, that interaction. And while from some salespeople, I got thumbs up, two thumbs up, <laughs> from the rest of the people that answered it, thinking more on the, about the buy side of the equation, they were like, eh, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. I don't know if I want to show myself in video this feels you know, like stranger danger. And so we kind of got blank stares with that. And then we took almost the same screens, put some different images in there and told a different story uh, because some of the feedback we got from that first prototype is like, hey, you know, this could actually be interesting at work. I, I'd like to communicate this way with my team. And so we pitched it Volley for Meetings and told about this team that has an async standup and then they're unblocking each other and syncing up throughout the day and doing this brainstorm. And I've never had a survey go viral before. Like I built, you know, a quiz tool. I've had a lot of quizzes go viral, but never a survey, especially a product concept survey. And this survey started to go viral, started to get shared within teams and all kinds of people were, were taking this survey about my Volley for Meetings concept. And I had to shut it down because I was like, oh, no, this idea is going to get out. Like, <laughs> we, got, we got to lock it up. But we got the feedback we need. And 97% of the people that filled out that survey were like, absolutely, we need this yesterday. I want to be a beta tester. So I knew we had something there or we were at least in the right ballpark. So hopefully that helps contrast, you know, like a night and day sort of scenario. Same screen, same technology, just kind of a different position, a different use case. There's two things that call out that I think a lot of people might be scared to do. I think I would is one is people are so hesitant to share things because you're going to, you could look dumb, you know, and you say you're just, you shared on your network and you could say that first iteration didn't work because of the persona you were focused on, but then you iterate, you share it again on the network and then it goes viral. So I think that's interesting. One is putting yourself out there, but two what do you think it was about that survey that made it go viral? Was it the fact that you're hitting on the pain point? Was there any nuance to the copy that you did? Just trying to find the secret sauce in it, or is it as simple as you hit on a pain point that people had? Volley, I, I like to think that we're solving a problem that once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. Once you realize how inefficient and interruptive your current communication stack is, you know, you're, you're either, if you're choosing to write content like on Slack or email, you're choosing to do something you're just naturally seven to eight times slower at. But that's the default option. And we, and we accept that because asynchronous written communication is flexible and we can fit it in, batch it in different time segments of our day. But on the other hand, you 
you realize you've got to talk in order to move work forward. So when you do that, you really only have two other options. You can either jump on a call or set up a meeting. Both are interruptive and have all of the, the pain points of like meandering of the conversation and small talk and technical difficulties and people that don't need to be there and all, all of the ills of synchronous communication, right? So it's both of those are pretty easy to sell against. So I think that's what we, we just kind of pointed to that. And, you know, I, I do have the benefit that people already know that I'm dumb. So I don't even have to be afraid to put myself out there. <laughs> I can just put something out there and be dumb. And people are like, yeah, good job, Josh. <laughs> that, that's, I, I doubt that, but that's pretty funny. So <laughs> you've got the idea, you've proven some traction. Now it's okay, maybe we should build this thing. What do you do next to build the MVP, if that's even the approach to get a product to market? I would say that we didn't have traction. We didn't, I don't know that we proved traction. I think we, we proved promise. Like people want to take the medicine. Okay. But will the medicine actually cure the disease? So the first thing we did is build a dog food prototype that the founding team just used. And we got that stood up in about six weeks and started having asynchronous video communication with each other and trying to, you know, think, see if this could actually replace meetings and, you know, how much of the spectrum of communication could we actually have asynchronously and experimenting and uh, started to work and massage that for a couple of months as a team and then went into private beta last fall with about 700 companies that we had on a wait list and then worked with them to try to take the product to the next level, build it cross-platform because we we really entered pri private beta on iOS only. And the first thing everyone said is like, hey, what about our Android person? And I communicate with my team on my computer. Not, I don't want to constantly pick up my phone. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So we started to build it cross-platform and, and just kind of announced availability earlier this year. And we've just been kind of refining and, and working with our users to just make sure that the medicine actually cures the disease, that people can move work forward faster with these async video conversations that we've invented. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you, you're saying we, so are you bringing on co-founder or are you hiring freelancers or do you have partners involved or is this all you? Oh, no. Oh, no. Josh can't code his way out of a paper bag, but I'm pretty dang good at building the dream team. And that's what I did. I, the founding team of Volley, we've all had exited companies successfully. We've all failed. Very mature set of founders. And it was kind of like, bringing the dream team together. And around us, we've, we've hired some of the top engineers in the world, a luxury that I haven't been able to enjoy until later in my career. But yeah, it is very much a, a team effort. So the founding team is two engineers, a, a designer and myself, which kind of create a nice rounded out offset skill set that we needed to approach the problem. That's pretty impressive, just the team to kind of build that up. And as you're building this out, where would you say you are right now? Are you at the phase of really proving you know, traction or are you at the point where you're looking to grow? Because I know with some products, you don't want to focus on growth too soon. But where's your head at right now as you're looking at the future for Volley? Yeah, so we're kind of in a transition. We haven't been pushing on growth yet. And that's a button I like to press. You know, my last two companies were performance marketed and sold to success. And so that's a comfortable place, but I know the path to success at Volley is product-led. Our users inviting other users, amazing K-factor, amazing retention. So we're just finally starting to see the K-factor and retention metrics 
K-factor, if anyone doesn't know, that's like a, a measure of viral growth. How many users are you getting from your user base organically? And so we measure that on kind of a monthly basis. So finally, we're, we're able to start seeing the numbers that help us realize, you know, we're, we're, we're maybe not there, but we're, we can hack our way there from, from the point that we're at. So we have strong, strong signals of product market fit. I wouldn't call it case closed yet. I think there's a few more things that the product needs, but you know, it's, it's a matter of polish from this point, I think. Yeah, that's what's exciting about your product is the potential for it to go viral within teams is something that could very much happen and take you to that next level. So yeah, excited to see how that takes off. I think it's smart to hone in on the product instead of focusing on growth too soon, because as you know, that can be a quick way to burn money. You mentioned that some of your other companies that got to that growth phase, it was very much based on product marketing. I'm interested as you're thinking of Volley or even like companies in the past and you're looking to accelerate growth, what are some channels or tactics you think about as you're looking to go to that next level? It's different for each company and it really depends on, you know, who your user is. And that's that's always the hard thing, you know, like it's pretty tempting to just go to the Google, Facebook and LinkedIn because those are kind of easy buttons to push and throw up a video or throw up a an image or a white paper and you can start to get traffic. And those are good for reliable sources. But, you know, with each company, I'm always looking for the cheat code. You know, like what is it that gives us an outsized return, some secret that we found and we found it with Bloomfire, we found it with Quizzer. I think we're starting to find it with Volley and, and the cheat code ultimately has to be just viral user growth, you know, like we've been talking about. But uh, I think there can be some other avenues. The the one with Volley that's interesting that I've been experimenting with, like we just had today, Greg Grace, who's the um, managing director of Techstars Boston, I created a video about Volley and ran a startup business competition on Volley. And so yeah, I, I think there could be kind of an interesting influencer play because it seems like those small teams, those startups, those side hustles that are getting the most out of Volley are probably, you know, in his audience or, or watching content like that. Yeah. And the thing is, especially with the B2B focus, business to business as opposed to business to consumer is if you get one person to adopt it at a company, the potential for them to share to then bring on their entire team of five people, 10 people, 50 people could have a significant impact on your monthly active users. So tactics like that, while they could sound scrappy or they don't scale, they could actually be the, the gasoline you put on the fire to go to that next level. So that's really smart. Absolutely. That's, you know, that's the thesis is that, you know, one team ignites another team, which ignites another team and all of that is word of mouth. And Volley also allows conversations outside of a workspace to happen naturally and easily. You know, Slack just announced that this year, finally, but Volley's kind of been built from the ground up to enable you to have a conversation with your group of investors or an attorney or an accountant or a colleague or mastermind group that you want to stay in touch with. Yeah, that yeah, I think testing all those use cases is extremely smart to see which one gets really sticky. No, very cool. So I'd love to one thing whenever we were emailing beforehand, I was like, I'd love to do a startup brainstorm with you because you have done so many different things. And you're like, actually, I have a long list and would be happy to talk through some. So first, I'm kind of interested to see just how you keep your ideas. And second, I'd love to just hear some off the top of your head. And these could be 
half-baked startup ideas. We're like, oh, this is maybe a good idea, maybe a horrible idea, but I want it to exist. They could be big or small, but open to what's on your mind because you clearly are someone that has done a lot of cool things that's always maybe scheming or thinking of the next thing. Scheming is a good word. You know, once you learn how to solve problems and, and build a company and a team around that, you just problems just seem to appear in front of you. Like one of my co-founders said he he didn't like going to a restaurant with me because I, you know, I'd always point out like, ah, why is the line start here? They should have a sign here. Like, why would they say this? The, the, it should be set up this way. You know, I'm a little obsessive. So whenever I see something I'm like, dang it, somebody should solve that problem. I'll record it in my spreadsheet called what's next. And it's just a list of ideas that I think somebody should build someday. And I've shared a lot of these openly at universities or, you know, startup events that I've spoken at. These are just things I think people should build and need to exist. So I'm happy to share some of them today. Many of these are very me-centric, like my problems, what I'm interested in. So it may not be anything anyone else gets, but, you know, some of these could be pretty interesting. No, I like the framework of a model of one that if it solves your problem, there's a chance it could solve somebody else's. So I love that. But no, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, yeah. So do you want consumer, B2B? It doesn't matter. Let's bounce around. Yeah. So a smart car air freshener. Why doesn't this exist? Because all car air fresheners either smell wrong, don't last very long, or are too strong. And I can get 100% of people to like say yes to all three of those. Like, There is no good car air freshener. So I was actually building a prototype and a concept of a smart car air freshener that uses oil, that kind of sits under your seat, next to the rear ear seat vent, USB powered. And so that was one I was experimenting with. It still doesn't exist. My car still doesn't smell like it should. And, you know, from someone like me, I'm just very sensitive to smell anything off the shelf at a store, I can't even open the package. I might as well leave it in the package and sit underneath the back seat because it, they're just too strong. And then the, the smell goes away. So that's one. And or, actually, just to jump, the funny thing about that is, I mean, the even in movies, they make fun of the, the pine tree air freshener for yes. smelling like a cab, right? It's been a, a problem since, I don't know, Ghostbusters in the 80s or 90s. You actually bring up almost a framework of, what can you make smart that is somewhat old school and antiquated to disrupt like the car air freshener market that hasn't been disrupted in like since cars were basically invented? I think that makes a lot of sense. I know I love that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think somebody should just build that. I, if, if you want, reach out to me. I've got some concepts and prototypes and I've done some testing. Another one is the Netflix of you, a concept I've called Uflix. Like why, why doesn't this exist? Why, why can't you just, you know, have some AI crawl your Google photos or photos and videos that starts to assemble reels of the best moments of your life? And maybe it sets them to music, maybe it doesn't, but it certainly is kind of the best it could pull together a 20 minute reel of my California trip. And you know, I'm one of those weirdos that comes home and makes that edited video. And I spend 20, 30 hours on each of those. It's a labor of love, but technology could do this. And, and then why couldn't you just have that consumable to your family on your phone or your Apple TV and a Netflix-like interface? Like, why, why doesn't this exist? The technology is there. So that's another one. Uh, someone just needs to do that. You know what's funny? I, I know on Apple, when you like scroll to the far left, they have these 
videos they'll make for you. And they did one of our trip to, trip to Cannon Beach, Oregon, that was literally like almost made my wife cry. It was like so well done. And we watched the entire thing like three times. So this absolutely should exist. And nobody likes the subject matter more than themselves. So I think you have people that would be very interested in it. It's like, how could you monetize it? It's yeah. If you pay a subscription fee for it, could be interesting. Or if it's some platform that's just getting an insane amount of traffic and you try and monetize it through sponsorships or something else. But and the mm -hmm. other point is we all have so many images that just sit on our phone that we never look at again. It could be a way to kind of shuffle it up and get some legs and use out of it. I think so. What were the conclusion I came to on this one is this is problem that Apple or Google is going to solve or needs to solve. Like it's going to come from them. Maybe I could do this, but that's my own assertion. Maybe foolishly, because you're right. Those, those I watch those Apple videos, but I'm always ticked because it's like 32 seconds and those aren't the pictures. And what is this music? You know? So sometimes they get it right, but most of the time it's like, yeah, I don't know. Why, why yeah. do you have the sign from our garage sale in the middle of our Oregon trip or whatever? Yeah, I do like it when they get it wrong because it's just so off. But when they get it right, <laughs> like, oh, wow, they actually finally nailed it. Yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. You want more? Yeah. Actually, let me pitch you one idea. I'll give you one quick break because I do want to hear a couple more because honestly, these are good. So are you, I think on one of your YouTube videos, I saw two girls. Are you a girl dad? Yeah, I have three girls. Three girls? Okay, I have two girls. And as a girl dad, I mean, you and I are both busy. We have companies, we have things going on. Sometimes I feel like I'm more reactive than proactive as a dad. And this probably exists. But I essentially want a subscription box and or newsletter that's specific to me, specific to the age of my girls. Okay, you've got a four-year-old, you've got a two-year-old. Here's some things to try. Okay, for the four-year-old, here's a balance bike or where you should buy one. For the two-year-old, okay, she's going to be really into this book. Something that makes me feel like I'm on top of my dad game. And I'm not sure what that looks like. If it's just content, if it's also product, if it's a combination of commerce and content. But I really want it to be personalized based on like the gender of the kid and then the age. And if they can have the right brand and feel, that would be good. It might, as they get older and they kind of choose what they want, it might not work. But I feel like the age that I'm at as a dad, it could work really well. But I'd be interested to get your take on that as a, as a fellow girl dad. Oh, absolutely. Like what dad wouldn't want to up there? Well, I guess I do know some dads that maybe don't care to up their game, but <laughs> most of us are really trying. But it's hard, as you said, it's hard to be proactive. It's hard to think of these things or go find that book. I, I, as you're talking about that, I'm even thinking experiences. If you could just send me the model rocket or send me the 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 thing that we could build together, or the little project we could work on, or the puzzle that we could solve, or yeah, so it, and it could be mixed up each month, so it's not always a different type of rocket ship that you're building, but it's, it's, you know, this, this month, it's an experience and you're going to go do this and you're, you're going to do a scavenger hunt and here's all the clues, just print this out. It seems that should exist. And I haven't heard about that. And if there is one, I'm not using it. So yeah, build it. exactly. There's fatherly, which is a good website, but I want something that's just for me. Let's go to Pickling. So Pickling, you, I, I believe, and you can speak to this, it's been in your family and it's Pickling, but I went to your Pickling website. What I loved is 
you're doing something from a marketing perspective that's genius. You're like, I may I do the best pickling in the world. We're only open for business one time a year. I sell out really fast. Get on the email list for when we launch. And it got me thinking, I just want to start a business where we do sales one time a year. We just <laughs> build up demand. We hype it up all year round. And then we just blow it out. And you're not trying to make a billion dollar business, but you can make a really fun lifestyle business that could pay for your vacations and even more. So I wanted to hear about your pickling business and the model around that. I assume it's because you're time constrained and that's the seasonality of it. But tell me more. Yeah, for sure. So it's a total hipster hobby business of mine. And <laughs> Yeah, maybe it could make enough to pay for a really crappy trip somewhere within the state, but <laughs> you know, it's it's really it's not that big. Hopefully the website isn't overhyping it, but uh it's really just constrained by what I can grow on my own property here um in central Utah. I've got a acre and a half and a pretty big garden and I grow all of my own cucumbers and dill and you know, all all of the ingredients that I need to to make pickles and um that's that's the constraint and it's true i sell out usually in an hour and this is why i thought should this be my next thing should i've never seen anyone respond to any product that i've ever built like people seem to respond to my pickles and it when i say my pickles it's my family's pickle recipes my family didn't have money they um, handed down uh, pickle recipes that were good. And that's what I have in my safe now is a leather bound book of some really good pickle recipes. So yeah, I just, it's, it is, it's a fun hobby, something I can do with my kids. We can make a little money and, you know, show them how to run a business at least for a couple of weeks a year. Well, I love it. And that's pretty special. You have the family history to it, but I think you could turn that into at least a, a trip to Maui. If you could just, <laughs> maybe you need to have more kids to help you pickle more. Maybe that's the, the move. But it's funny that you hit on the, you joke that it's a hipster hobby, but I almost want to lean into the persona more. Maybe the next venture is you make the best homemade like beard wax or something for hipsters that you just release at a certain time of season. There's also, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's really smart. It's, I think it's called like the cookie drop and it's only through text message, but it's this company that comes up with these crazy cookie recipes once a week. And then we have a limited amount that they make and you have to respond via text and buy through text to get it. But they're now doing seven figures just by doing these crazy cookie recipes and launching wow. them on a weekly basis. But your, your, your pickling inspired me. So I got to figure out what our move is. I got to get my girls to work. <laughs> well, it, it could totally be something that's scaled up. The, the problem with pickles and why I passed is in order to do it, in order to build something big, you kind of have to sell out. And if you don't <laughs> sell out, you're, I mean, really, there's a reason why all the store-bought pickles kind of taste the same. It's because there's these requirements for acidification and killing of, of pathogens such as listeria and E. coli and all those things that make you have to over acidify those pickles that are on the shelf. And that's why they're really bitter and they don't taste like cucumbers anymore. And they just taste like some science experiment. So you either have to sell out or you have to build a super grindy capital intensive local business. And it, you know, maybe if it were my first go or I just needed a hobby, that would be it. But after building three software companies with software like multiples and, you know, scalability, 
it was just really hard to like look at that look at that PL of the pickle company and, and think, <laughs> yeah, that looks awesome. Wait, what's this line? Cogs? I've never seen this line before. Why is that number so high? Oh, <laughs> it's expensive. Yeah, and then throw in the fact that your your cost of goods sold, your product actually can expire. And there's other requirements that come with that. Yeah. Right. Maybe software is especially when it's subscription software, it it's basically magic. It's wow, they buy this and then they keep paying for it every single month or quarter. That yeah, I think you chose the right business model. Yeah. Yeah. Any more ideas you want to throw out there? I feel like you could probably go for hours. I won't make you do that, but some pretty good stuff. How about I just throw out one that is less techie? Yes. Pretty much anyone could pick, but maybe only few would get. And that is RV Park Roll-Up. Why is there no premium brand, premium experience RV Park? Well, and I guess this is where it gets technology with a great technology play. So Camping is like all the craze, especially now. The RV industry is sold out of everything. People are trying to get out, want to explore the world. Now you can work remotely from anywhere, from your Airstream. But yet, all this whole industry is like outdated and, you know, 30 years behind. So, I mean, there's a lot of technology play there. But just buying an RV park, creating a killer experience that someone could like book a site on their phone, see it, get the gate code touchless, you know, touchless entry, touchless exit. It just seems like that's a killer move. And RV parks are already cash cows. So if it had a great marketing engine and, you know, there was there was even a subscription that someone could belong to, it seems like that's pretty interesting play. I've thought about that one as quite a bit. The four seasons of RV parks. It, it's funny yeah. because my father-in-law is looking to get an RV and come out, we're in Seattle, come out from Texas and I was trying to find a cool spot for him along the way, but some of them just look a little dicey and it can be very hit or miss. And you could be at an RV park and you have this RV that's worth seven figures and one that looks like it's worth seven cents. And if mm-hmm. you, you could create that experience and you could even throw in access to a local market to get firewood or s'more stuff or, or whatever you would want. But I, yeah. And it kind of comes back to volley, like the right idea at the right time. Mm-hmm. You're seeing this massive demand for road trips and these experiences for, for camping. I, I think that's actually a really, really good one. Obviously, you need the real estate component, but that that could be pretty special. Well, that's the bonus is these tend to be in the most desirable locations in the United States. Like you, you build an RV park either near a national park or the coast or something cool that people want to see. So you not only own real estate in a very desirable place, it sort of pays for itself. And the, the amount people are able to charge these days is like almost hotel rates for a piece of concrete and a power you know pole with a sewer spout in, in the ground. So to me, it's a pretty interesting business if somebody could do it and and scale that up and was really had an affinity for creating experiences and premium experiences. I think that could be a great opportunity. Love it. You got to nail the branding. Something that's really catchy. I wish I could think yeah. of something on the spot, but I'm I'm empty. But that's that's a that's a fun one. Okay. Yeah. You, you closed with one that was quite strong. You were sandbagging. So well done on that one. So we'll we'll kind of finish. I have a few last questions. So. You worked at Red Lobster proudly for five years, and you had this quote, everything I needed to know to be successful, I learned on this job. Best job I ever had, working with ex-cons was a bonus. Tell me more about this experience. 
Yeah, well, the ex-cons part, the state prison was in my hometown and turns out they, they kind of stick around when they get out. And so half of the kitchen was ex-convicts. And so I, I got I learned some interesting things there. But best job I ever had because it was just so fun. And you learn, sometimes the, the crappiest job can teach you the most about life and work. And you know, there's something about feeding hungry people, being responsive, communicating, you know, when you're waiting tables. And then when you're in, you know, I worked in the kitchen as well and uh, learning how to be fast and learning how to be efficient with my movements, learning how to think about, you know, becoming better at what I'm doing. And I set, you know, I, I cut the baked potato, I set the knife down here so that I can always reach it and I don't even have to look down and then I can turn around and I can grab the fry basket and, you know, all of those things. So there are just so many lessons that I learned from them that I, I keep reusing over and over in sales and in project management and product development. It's kind of the same principles. How do you make your steps more efficient? How do you build a good process? How do you create a way to delight users and customers? All of that kind of came out of making shrimp scampies and garlic cheese biscuits. <laughs> if Red Lobster HR doesn't get this and make you <laughs> like a sponsorship offer, I don't know what it takes, but yeah. I'm about to quit my job and go work at Red Lobster. That was really good. You know, I it's actually funny. thought about it in, in some of the in some of the breaks I've taken from building startups. I've actually thought, you know what? Maybe six months. It'd be fun to just pick up some fry shifts, you know, and just the, th throw the fryers around, show the kids these days how it's done. Oh my gosh! So like, like Josh, we think you should be a manager. Like, nope, I want to start at the bottom again, putting on yep, the fries. Yep. Um, <laughs> you know what's it's funny because I I worked like. I had some crappy jobs. I've like painted houses. I've done landscaping. I've, I did like bartending, bar back, all that stuff. But I think you, I'm a little skeptical when people don't have those jobs. Like my wife proudly worked at Sonic and Cracker Barrel. So we can, I think working in the service industry teaches you a lot that you don't even realize. But yeah, I think yep. that's a great thing to have gone through. Well, to your point, you can tell, you know, I've, I've had, I've I've hired people that didn't have those experiences and it's apparent they're somehow spoiled like their dad got them a job at you know doing some cool thing r right out of high school or whatever and you know they they didn't have to work in high school there's something about that grind that that really makes you a better person I think yeah, and a better worker. yeah I totally agree it puts things into perspective and you don't take for mm -hmm. granted what you get nice so if you were starting your career today, what would you do? Well, that is a good question. Do I do I get to keep what I know now, or am I starting? You get to keep what you knowledge? know now. You have okay. all the intelligence, but it's like blank slate. It's right. You start tomorrow. What would you do? Well, I would make a direct path to entrepreneurship because it, you know it was a winding road for me. It took years. In starting where I started things unfolded the right way for me. And I came into entrepreneurship at the right time. I wasn't ready when I was 20. I wouldn't know what company I would start and why and why that mattered and how to even get customers. Or and So I needed my corporate jobs to get me there. But now that I know what I know, yeah, my path would be into entrepreneurship. And starting out, I would start a service company. And, and I happened upon this. Uh, my first company was a service company. Maestro is basically an interactive agency that builds online learning experiences. I would build a service company because 
And I, and I tell whenever I speak at university, I tell the students that that's probably the right place to start. If you have an idea for a product company and you're in your early 20s, build a service company in that space first. Solve a problem that people are willing to pay you for in that space and get a bunch of clients and learn kind of on their dime and build a, a strong financial foundation. And I accidentally went through that path, but building Maestro first helped me start to work with, you know, several dozen large companies and, and see training pro programs at a meta level and kind of start to see the problem from a different perspective, as well as give me the capital that I needed to, to go start a product company. You know, we, we took the, the profits of Maestro and just invested them into Bloomfire to build the software company. So that's where I'd start. I'd, I'd build some sort of service company, quickly move into entrepreneurship. Okay, I don't, first off, I could not agree with you more. I'm going to stop myself from going on a rant. But <laughs> there's a blog post by Nathan Barry called The Ladders of Wealth Creation, a step-by-step -step roadmap to building wealth. And he 100% supports what you just said as far as instead mm. of going to work for somebody, the first entry point to be an entrepreneur is a service-based business. And then you can ladder up to a productized service or actually selling a product, like the exact path yeah. you hit on. And so many great companies started that way, whether it's you know Basecamp that did it that way or even ConvertKit. So very, yeah, very cool. I totally commend that. Well, and I think there might be a prerequisite there because I'm speaking from if I know what I know now. But the other thing I say is go get a job for a couple of years. Go get your butt kicked in the corporate world. Go learn what suck really looks like, what inefficiency looks like, what what makes teams work and not work. Like those those things are invaluable lessons. So for me, I needed that corporate experience. I needed to feel the pain of that in order to build the experiences that I've built. So I, I don't know if someone right out of school can jump into entrepreneurship. Certainly some can, and there are remarkable stories of 20-year-olds building billion-dollar companies, and you know they're in the news because they're noteworthy and newsworthy. It's probably not the reliable path to wealth creation. It's probably go get a job, you know, figure out what, find a problem to solve, then go start a service company around that problem. Yeah, that job can be the the jumping off point to figure out where you want to point yourself. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I had to have that corporate background as well. So, so two last questions for you. What's the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? Well, that would have to be my co-founder, Jen Randall, in my first company. She was living in South Carolina. I was living in Michigan and I was diagnosed with cancer while they were up visiting. And she decided right then and there, that they were selling their beautiful home in South Carolina, moving to Michigan so that she could be with the team and kind of take over for me while I was going through the, the treatments and, you know, the process in the next, you know, six or eight weeks of my life that I needed to just focus on health. So, oh, it makes me emotional to think about it, but that's probably far and away the nicest thing anyone's done for me professionally. Wow. I mean, to have a partner like that, that on the spot does that, it's, Amazing, especially you never know who you're really getting into business with. You can have these ups and downs that show true colors, but when it works out, it is beyond special. That's that's a really good story. Thanks for sharing that one. You bet. Yeah, you're right. The choosing the right co-founders, there's there's an art and a science to that. But when you get it right, it's it's just magic. It's one plus one equals three for sure. Yeah. 
It, yeah, people are the hardest and the the best part about business for sure. So I have to ask because you are a trained musician with an insanely uh, amazing voice. What's your go to karaoke song? Oh, you know what? I hate karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> it's anytime we uh, I sing karaoke, it's like the worst performance of my life, and I don't know why. And now I I have some block, so I don't really have a go to song. Usually, I'll pick something from like Les Mis or Phantom or you know some musical theater thing that that somebody knows and and that is at least okay or we'll just go all out and do some journey song some big rock ballad from the 80s like open arms or you know living or uh, not living on prayer don't stop believing <laughs> yeah no i i hate karaoke as well mainly because i have a horrible voice but yeah <laughs> i whenever i'm there and i see someone get up and just show their chops that they're legit i'm like that was amazing and now i'm gonna leave because i don't want to have to follow that whatsoever so um, well you awesome. don't have to worry about that being me because it's, it's, <laughs> it's not that amazing it's like, yeah. it sounds like he maybe knows how to sing but uh yeah who knows it's the venue it's the venue josh this was awesome and this was really fun where would you like to point people if they want to learn more about you or about bali well, if you go to volleyapp.com, you'll be uh, invited to a conversation with me automatically. <laughs> so best way to talk to me is download Volley and invite your team. Well, awesome. Well, Josh, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. You bet. It's been my pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.